You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 272 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, we used the last episode to talk about the fighting at Salem Church, east of Chancellorsville, on May 3rd, 1863. And so by the time the sun set on day 7 of the campaign, there had been ferocious fighting at Chancellorsville, at Fredericksburg, and at Salem Church. The human cost of the three clashes that day was staggering. The butcher's bill of 21,357 men for the two armies together would make May 3rd second only to Antietam as the bloodiest single day of the war. During the fighting at Chancellorsville itself, Casualties came at a rate of one man every second for five hours. We didn't have a chance to talk about it in the last show, but we did want to mention this week that, as Chris Mikowski and Christopher D. White point out in their book on Chancellorsville, but sadly, Salem Church now serves as the poster child for lost opportunities in the ongoing struggle to preserve Civil War battlefields. The church itself, built in 1844 by a Baptist congregation, sits on less than three acres of property now owned by the National Park Service. In 1958, the congregation built a new church, which sits on the far side of the adjacent cemetery. In 1962, they donated the old church to the Park Service. At about that time, plans for the new interstate highway... I-95, got underway, triggering population growth and commercial development in the area. When the property around Salem Church came up for sale in 1977 at a price tag of $300,000, the Park Service claimed it was $25,000 too high and so let the property slip away. By 1981, a gas station appeared on the ground across from the old church, and the flood of development has gone on unabated ever since. The original church is periodically open to the public, but the grounds are open for visitors to explore. There's a granite marker installed in 1903 by James Power Smith, a former member of Stonewall Jackson's staff, and a large stone and bronze tablet 
erected by the United Daughters of the Confederacy in 1927 on May 3rd, the 64th anniversary of the battle. The site also includes two monuments erected by veterans from a pair of New Jersey regiments, the 15th and 23rd, on either side of Route 3. We closed the last episode with the observation that, by the end of the day on May 3rd, Robert E. Lee was now fully in the driver's seat. He had bested Hooker and stopped Sedgwick in his tracks. With the Yankees rocked back on their heels, it was up to Lee to decide whom he would pitch into first the next day. Would it be Mr. F.J. Hooker or Uncle John? It's really quite remarkable that Hooker never attempted to regain the initiative. Even after the setbacks the Federals had suffered on May 3rd, Hooker still had the perfect opportunity to strike out at Lee on the 4th, could have still pushed his numerically superior force forward and fallen on the much smaller Confederate army. But it was not to be. Once Hooker surrendered the initiative to Lee in the Chancellorsville campaign, Fighting Joe never made a serious attempt to regain it. That defensive mindset, coupled with the debilitating effects of the concussion Hooker suffered on May 3rd, meant that, for all intents and purposes, Robert E. Lee would have a free hand to do as he pleased on the 4th. And what Robert E. Lee decided he would like to do on May 4th was destroy the enemy force led by Major Sedgwick. We think it's kind of funny that Lee continued to refer to Sedgwick as Major Sedgwick because of their association in the pre-war army. It is kind of funny. But in any event, Lee, for his part, had perfectly taken the measure of his opponent and understood that he had nothing to fear from Hooker, which meant that he, Lee, knew he had a golden opportunity to trap and destroy Sedgwick's force. Exactly. And for his part, after his breakout, such as it was, from Fredericksburg, was blocked at Salem Church, Sedgwick wasn't sure what to do next. He didn't receive any helpful instructions from headquarters, so Uncle John decided he would reposition his forces in the darkness and prepare to fight defensively on May 4th. The vague orders Sedgwick did receive from Army headquarters seemed to give him the discretion to act as events dictated. So, as Rich said, Sedgwick decided that, with the road to Chancellorsville effectively closed to him, his best course of action was to form defensive lines and prepare for the renewed rebel assaults he felt sure were coming. Right. And with Hooker hunkered down, turtle-like, in his new defensive lines north of Chancellorsville, Uncle John was essentially on his own. After the Battle of Salem Church, Lafayette McClaw's Confederates were between Sedgwick and Hooker, and to Sedgwick's rear, while John Gibbon's Federals had been left back in Fredericksburg to hold down the fort there, nevertheless there was still Jubal Early's strong force of rebels for Sedgwick to worry about, lurking off somewhere nearby just to the south of Fredericksburg. So no doubt about it, Sedgwick was in a tight spot. 
On the night of May 3rd, Robert E. Lee ordered McClaws and Early to make arrangements for a coordinated Confederate attack against Sedgwick as soon as possible the next day. Lee wanted McClaws to attack from the west and Early to come in from the east and catch Major Sedgwick in a vice. Even with the combined strength of Early's and McClaws' divisions, plus two additional brigades, Lee realized that the situation would be unfavorable to his commanders with regard to numbers. But he also recognized that after the events of May 3rd, the Federals were off balance, and Sedgwick was particularly vulnerable. Lee sensed that determined, coordinated rebel assaults from two directions could break Sedgwick. Lee told McClaws that if the plan worked, then, quote, I think you would demolish them. On May 4th at 7 a.m., one of Early's brigades, Georgians, led by John B. Gordon, retook Marie's Heights from the small force of Federals that Gibbon had left to guard the place. You see, John Gibbon had left only a token force on Marie's Heights, since, with little direction from any higher authority, he was more concerned with holding Fredericksburg itself and guarding the pontoon bridges than he was with making a strong defense of the recently captured heights. After retaking Maurice Heights, Gordon and his Georgians continued west out the plank road and soon came upon Sedgwick's Federals. Even when extra Billy Smith's Brigade of Virginians came up on Gordon's right, the rebels couldn't make any headway against the stout Yankee resistance, and eventually Early ordered his troops to pull back, since by that time it was around 11 a.m., and he still hadn't heard any sounds of battle coming from McClaws at Salem Church. Robert E. Lee had given responsibility for arranging the synchronized assaults to Jubal Early, who was to coordinate movements with McClaws so that their two forces attacked Sedgwick simultaneously. Remember how they were to squeeze Sedgwick in a vice? As the morning dragged on, though, it was obvious to Lee that something was wrong, so he set out to discover the cause of the delay. Lee met up with McClaws at Salem Church. Earlier, McClaws had sent a message to Lee saying that Sedgwick's line to his front was too strong for him to possibly attack without reinforcements. In fact, on the morning of May 4th, without his corps commander, James Longstreet, the stalwart Lafayette McClaws seemed, well, a bit lost. Yep, uh, but at any rate, in response to McClaws' earlier message, Lee had decided to weaken his forces, keeping an eye on Hooker even further, and send Richard Anderson's remaining three brigades, nearly 4,000 men in all, to fill the gap between Early and McClaws. That way, Sedgwick would be boxed in from three directions, by McClaws to the west, Anderson to the south, and Early to the east. But, for a variety of reasons, it would end up taking a great deal of time for Anderson to bring his men over. They finally started filing into position around 11 a.m., about the time that Jubal Early, just to the east, was pulling his troops back, after they had failed to make any headway against Sedgwick's Federals there, and because he hadn't heard any sounds of battle coming from McClaw's direction. It was shortly thereafter that Robert E. Lee arrived at Salem Church and met up with McClaws. 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. With no real direction from Hooker, with his road to Chancellorsville blocked, with no real chance of returning to Fredericksburg and linking up with Gibbon, John Sedgwick had decided to rearrange his lines into a tighter defensive perimeter, with his back to the Rappahannock, so that he could protect Banks Ford, which now represented his line of communication back across the river, and if it came to it, would be the route by which he would retreat to safety. It was the eastern portion of this defensive perimeter where Jubal Early's Confederates had run into a buzzsaw of federal musketry and artillery fire before Early pulled them back, because McClaws had failed to advance simultaneously. When Robert E. Lee arrived at Salem Church and realized how badly his plans for coordinated assaults that morning had run off the rails, his famous temper started to boil. A lack of communication between Early and McClaws had led to confusion as to who was to make the first move against Sedgwick. Early thought McClaws was supposed to support his morning move, and McClaws was waiting to hear that Early had launched a major attack before he advanced. It must be said that a shortage of corps commanders was a problem here again for Lee. With Longstreet absent, Lee had entered the battle with one corps commander, Stonewall Jackson, and although Jeb Stuart had stepped in to fill the breach after Jackson's wounding, Stuart was now commanding the force left to watch Hooker, so Lee had no corps commander to coordinate the attack against Sedgwick. Exactly. But as time continued to slip away, and Lee's frustration continued to mount, Early and McClaws finally settled on an attack plan. The preparations for the assault took all afternoon, though, and it wasn't until 6 p.m. that a Confederate battery gave the signal to advance. Three shots fired in rapid succession. The noise broke the tension for thousands of waiting men, and the rebel infantry started forward. On the evening of May 4th, though, the Confederate command structure again revealed its defects, as Early's division would do the heavy lifting here. 
Anderson's men would do very little fighting, and McClaw's contribution was, well, precisely nothing. The brigades of Harry Hayes and Robert Hoke from Early's division swept forward, headed for the Federal lines. John B. Gordon's brigade made for Taylor's Hill on the far left flank of Sedgwick's position. If Gordon could take Taylor's Hill and continue driving forward, he could capture Banks' ford and cut off the rebels' line of retreat back across the river. As Early's men charged forward, they quickly pushed back the Federal skirmishers and came upon the main enemy defensive line, just beyond the Plank Road. This part of Sedgwick's position was held by Brigadier General Albion Howe's Federals, and Howe had deployed his troops so that he, he could utilize a defense in depth. Out in front was Thomas H. Neal's brigade, deployed on high ground. About 500 yards behind Neal's men were the five Vermont regiments of Lewis Grant's brigade, posted on a ridge. Twelve Union artillery pieces covered the ground between the two brigades. Early's Confederates came on, even as Federal musketry and cannon fire tore at their battle lines. The rebel infantry closed the gaps in the ranks and pressed forward, but when they came up to Neal's position, they staggered under the overwhelming impact of the heavy enemy fire. The desperate fight here raged for seemingly endless minutes until the colonel of the 20th New York fell wounded. With their commander down, the New Yorkers broke and fled, opening the right flank of Neal's line. With his position compromised by the flight of the 20th New York, Neal ordered his men to fall back. The Confederate attackers sensed they were on the verge of breaking the enemy line, and they rushed forward. But as Hoke crossed the plank road, he was wounded in the shoulder and fell from his horse. Soon after, his brigade lost direction and collided with Hayes' brigade to its right. After the two rebel brigades were sorted out, they again resumed their advance upon the Federal line they thought was disintegrating. But lying in wait for them were Grant's Vermonters. Grant's Federals waited until the rebels drew close and then fired a killing volley into the enemy ranks. The storm of lead stopped the Confederates in their tracks. When the 6th Vermont counterattacked, the rebels retreated back to the 1st Yankee defensive line, which they had taken earlier. Meanwhile, during the attacks on Neal's Federals, John B. Gordon's Georgians, just to the north, had pressed forward toward Taylor's Hill. Remember, their aim, after occupying the hill, was to push on toward Banks Ford and, if possible, cut off Sedgwick's line of retreat across the Rappahannock. The rebels quickly drove in the Union skirmishers to their front, but were blasted by enemy artillery positioned across the river. Sedgwick, at the last possible moment, quickly moved Frank Wheaton's Pennsylvania Brigade to counter the threat. Wheaton's Pennsylvanians stopped the Confederate advance and then drove the rebels back. Gordon was left in possession of Taylor's Hill, but was denied the prize of Banks Ford. Dick Anderson, from his section of the Confederate lines, moved forward, but the Federal skirmishers, backed by artillery fire, stopped the rebel advance before it ever reached the main line of defense on the Plank Road. When darkness brought a stop to the fighting, Sedgwick's lines had held. 
Sedgwick's lines had held, but the Confederate assaults had given him a good scare and came close to breaching his perimeter. And so, after darkness covered the battlefield that evening, he began pulling his troops back toward Banks' Ford for possible withdrawal across the Rappahannock. Robert E. Lee was intensely frustrated by the results of the day's fighting, knowing that a golden opportunity to destroy Sedgwick on May 4th had slipped through his fingers. When word came in that the Federals were pulling back, Lee ordered McClaws forward to pursue them and not allow the Yankees to cross the river and escape. It was the first and only night attack Lee ever ordered. But night attacks are inherently problematical, and that fact, coupled with the reality that McClaw's troops were simply physically worn out from days of marching and fighting, meant that the Confederates could do little more than grope ahead in the deepening gloom through the thick woods. That steady Confederate pressure took its toll on the Federals, though. As they pulled back to their last line closer to the river, the Yankees felt the squeeze. Sedgwick sent word to Hooker, urgently asking for instructions. A message finally returned at 2 a.m., giving him permission to withdraw across the river, then cover the crossing site to prevent the rebels from forcing their way across. Sedgwick started his men over almost immediately. If Hooker had his way, though, Sedgwick might have stayed on the south bank after all. That's because a mere 15 minutes after sending the first message, Hooker had changed his mind, and he sent a second message ordering Sedgwick to stay put. However, the communication problems that plagued Hooker and Sedgwick the entire campaign again came into play, so that that message arrived two hours after the first. By that time, Uncle John had no intention of turning back. Sedgwick had had enough. He was uncertain about the size of the Confederate force pressuring him, uncertain whether he could hold his hemmed-in line along the river, uncertain whether Hooker would actually aid the beleaguered Sixth Corps. And so the withdrawal across the Rappahannock continued. As night slipped toward morning and the Confederate pressure continued, order among the Federals began to deteriorate. By the time one of the last units to cross, the 102nd Pennsylvania, reached the bridge, confusion reigned at the site. Some of the Pennsylvanians managed to cross, but more than a hundred were taken prisoner. By the time the Confederates reached the river, though, Sedgwick, for all intents and purposes, had pulled off a successful crossing. The Army of the Potomac's Sixth Corps had slipped away from Robert E. Lee's grasp and sat safely on the north side of the river. That morning, the morning of May 5, 1863, when Robert E. Lee learned of Sedgwick's escape, the Confederate commander couldn't conceal his anger and disappointment. E. Porter Alexander reported, quote, I saw him in a temper, end quote. Lee quickly composed himself, though, and turned his mind back to the situation at hand. He had allowed Major Sedgwick to slip away, which was regrettable, but Hooker, well, Hooker still presented a tempting target with his back to the river. And so Lee returned Jubal early to Fredericksburg, while he hurried everyone else back to Chancellorsville at once to deal with Mr. F.J. Hooker.
That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The War for the Common Soldier, How Men Thought, Fought, and Survived in Civil War Armies by Peter S. Carmichael. This book doesn't have anything specifically to do with Chancellorsville, but it came out late last year, that is 2018, and we've kept it waiting in the wings until we had a chance to recommend it. And since we've run out of Chancellorsville books, well, here you go. We give this new study of Men at War two thumbs up, or four thumbs up, since there's actually two of us. Anyway, that's The War for the Common Soldier, How Men Thought, Fought, and Survived in Civil War Armies by Peter S. Carmichael. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. So, guess what, dear listeners? We're closing in on the end of the Chancellorsville story arc. In fact, next week we'll wrap it up with Chancellorsville, part the 16th, 16 episodes. Huh. Uh, after that, we'll spend a show talking about Stonewall Jackson's death, and after that, well, stay tuned, but it looks like we may take a detour to West Virginia before we head out to Vicksburg. How many episodes do you think we'll spend on Vicksburg? Well, you know, after Vicksburg, we'll be Gettysburg, and since we're both kind of anxious to get to Gettysburg, maybe we can do Vicksburg in, oh, I don't know. Two or three episodes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, okay, well, we'll see. Anyway, we wanted to remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next week. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.